<clears throat> so this morning I want to um, expand really on one of the key ideas we find in these verses and that is the idea of uh, fixations. In the last piece I read last night, uh, the section entitled Self, the analysis of self, at the very bottom of page 114, Nagarjuna says, fixations spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops fixations. At the very beginning of the, the karikas, the verses, in fact in the opening homage on page 81, 2, 3, 83, we have an, again a an exact um, a reference to the equivalence between emptiness and contingency where Nagarjuna says, I bow to Buddhas who teach contingency and ease fixations. We find this expression again and again and again. The Nagarjuna in a sense opposes the notion of emptiness to the notion of fixations. So emptiness and fixation are almost kind of polar terms. Emptiness being understood as the easing of fixations. Now there's an awful lot that can be unpacked here and I want to spend this morning um, in a sense sketching the context in which this term fixation can be understood. The easing of fixations is equivalent uh, for Nagarjuna to Nirvana itself. And again, it may not be obvious from the translation, but the word ease is uh, the verb form of the noun shanti. Now, shanti means peace, as I'm sure most of you are aware. Now, the problem in translation, and I'm sorry if I harp on, on, and on and on about problems with translation, is that in English we can say peace as a noun, but we have difficulty finding a verb form, and most translators tend to opt for pacify. <laughs> now the problem with that is that um, it doesn't, as, as the, as the uh, collective mumble tended to uh, suggest doesn't quite capture what the verb for peace would be and you find this both in, in Sanskrit and in Tibetan you can say peace and to peace jiwa in Tibetan can be a noun and it can be a verb and this is the case with so many of these terms nirvana can be a noun it can be a verb buddha can be a noun it can be a verb path it can be a noun, it can be a verb. And so we have a problem in translation. We simply don't have equivalent verb forms. Now to say pacify fixations almost suggests a kind of suppression. When we pacify a child with a pacifier, it's to shut them up. To pacify fixations I think gives totally the wrong feel and you certainly wouldn't assume that to be somehow equivalent to nirvana. The word shanti and the word is actually largely used as a synonym in Buddhist texts for nirvana. 
the peace, the, say, the peace of nirvana, nirvanic peace, or simply peace, nirvana. In trying to find a word in English that could function equally well as a verb and as a noun, I came across this notion of ease. Ease is a state in which we can rest, you know, be at ease, rest at ease, a state of ease. And we can also use it quite conveniently as a verb, to ease something, to ease fixations, to, to ease one's mind. And so what I've done in this translation is I've used this term ease rather than peace and pacify. Now the easing of fixations. Fixations is my translation of the Sanskrit word prapancha, on Pali, papancha. And this again is usually translated as proliferation. Now, proliferation um, is actually quite literally exact, uh, and that carries through even into the Tibetan truba. In Tibetan, means to sort of to to to, uh, to proliferate, to 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 project outwards, lit literally. So fixations certainly have this quality of of proliferating, of spinning out of control, of basically creating turmoil. But both in the Pali as well as in the Tibetan, the term also means to be obsessed. It means to be um, preoccupied with something. Uh, Tsongkhapa, in his commentary to Nagarjuna, uh, uses an expression, Dembarajembe um, Truba, or Dembarajembe Truba, which means the, the prapancha, the truba, the fixations, that um, hold things to be intrinsically real. So in that sense, prapancha, and this is how it's widely used throughout the Tibetan traditions, even in other contexts like Mahamudra and elsewhere. Fixation implies this core grasping, tightening, gripping itself, gripping at things being things, as we mentioned yesterday. This, the, 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 the essential kind of reification process of tightening up. And so the easing of fixations has actually two functions, which correspond to the double function of the term fixation itself. One can both ease a grip or a tightening, and one can also ease well, maybe this is pushing the language a bit, one can ease the turmoil of one's mind. Now, what's difficult in English is to get a word that captures both senses, both the tightening and the proliferating, which seem at first glance to be quite <coughs> different things. When we grip something tightly, we feel that we're sort of pulling things into a central point somewhere, firming something up. Whereas proliferation suggests a kind of going out of control, going all over the place. There's no word in English that captures that. But I think it's crucial in the understanding of prapancha that we catch its double meaning. And experientially, I think it's very important too that we notice that this is of course what happens when we become attached or preoccupied or obsessed with something, what does that do? How does that feel? 
I think for much of the time it feels as though we've generated and created some kind of turbulence. We, 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 as soon as we're attached to something we really are locked into something, be it an object or a person or an idea, that sets the condition for an unease. So we have ease and then we have unease. We feel uneasy as soon as we're locked into that attachment, into that preoccupation. And that unease then, as it were, begins to shake and rattle us a bit and then generates, spins off all manner of fantasies, daydreams, preoccupations, obsessions. The mind starts running into going on overdrive, just generating endless streams of thoughts, worries, longings, fears. It all comes bubbling out. And as we know from sitting in meditation, this is so often what we spend much of our time being with, a kind of out-of-control mind, everything going everywhere. And if we begin to look into the origins of that um, craziness, that spinning out of control, we may begin to find that its origins are in a psychological act which is quite different from proliferation. It's this tightening, it's this holding on, this refusal to let go, this obsessive clinging. And this, I think, is a crucial psychological insight that the term prapancha, turba, fixation, gives us. It shows the connection between two things which on the surface appear quite different. In looking for a metaphor for this, um, it struck me that one might be the squeezing of the trigger of a gun, or the, the, or the pressing the button of an alarm. In other words, you tighten something, the trigger, the trigger finger tightens, and then that tightening releases an explosion. Or you press the button, very hard perhaps if you're rather afraid of something, and that sends bells off all around the property. So it's that kind of example perhaps that can see how you can have a tightening that then catalyzes an explosion. And I think Nagarjuna is quite clear about this. And in fact, the, if we look at this, um, this, these three lines I just read out, fixations spawn thoughts. Now, in the, in the original, the, the word for fixation and the word for spawn are the same. <coughs> fixation is the noun, spawn is the verb, but they're both prapancha. One used as a noun, one used as a verb. And I think that double usage it just says, prapancha, prapancha's thoughts. But I've chosen to understand that as the first term meaning fixation, the tightening, and the second, spawn, in the sense of, like, spawning, giving rise to lots of things. Thoughts. And thoughts provoke compulsive acts. So not, this is not just any old thought. This is thoughts that have been spawned that have been proliferated, that have been generated by this particular kind of grasping. Where are you? Sorry? Where are you? Oh, I'm sorry, uh, 114. So these kinds of thoughts are those that are generated by a particular kind of grasping, and that kind of worried, anguished, neurotic thinking is what provokes or what leads us into acting out of compulsion rather than choice. 
In other words, this uh, clinging, this proliferating, is that which, in a way, compromises our freedom. It becomes such an issue for us, it becomes such a, a weight in our minds, such an obsession, that we then find ourselves saying and doing things that we may subsequently regret. And that whole process, from fixation, the spawning of thoughts, the compulsive acts, is a system, as it were, that is in complete opposition or completely different from living a life that is founded in what we call emptiness. So emptiness is the non-grasping and it's the non-proliferating. And nirvana is the coming to rest both of the grasping of fixation and also of the turmoil that it generates. Now what I want to do is to try and um, expand on precisely what this fixation-driven kind of uh, behavior um, uh, involves. And for this reason, I've handed out uh, last night the, uh, a piece of paper with the heading Kilesha. Now, Kilesha is a term the Buddha uses, uh, but not very often. You very rarely come across this term in the early canon. But it's picked up quite um, quickly by the Abhidharmists, by the early Buddhist philosophers, and it really becomes the kind of generic word for this whole structure of grasping and confusion. Now, the word klesha, and in, um, in Nagarjuna, in this book, I translate klesha as compulsion, and the word compulsive acts are acts which are driven by klesha. Um, but again, to highlight how difficult it is to find an appropriate word, um, in this text, I'm actually using the more familiar translation of affliction. Um, other translations, um, early uh, translations from the, of the Pali, often use the word passions to translate kilesha, sometimes corruptions. Um, in other contexts, um, in my translation of Shantideva, for example, I translate it as disturbing conceptions. Now, all of these translations are, 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 are useful, and, and, in, and together they build up a kind of composite picture of what it is we're talking about. But again, I don't think there's really any, a single English word that can catch this. Apparently, the, the, the very word klesha in Sanskrit suggests something like torment and pain. Torment and pain. And in the definition that I've printed out here, which comes from Asanga, again. He defines klesha in the following way. He says, klesha, affliction, compulsion, whatever, is a conceptual mental factor that upon arising in the mind causes disturbance and unease. So what's, I think, striking here are two things. First of all, the klesha are caught up in conceptuality. In other words, they are bringing into the world, into experience, the overlay of ideas, images, pictures in the mind. Again, we'll go into that a bit more tomorrow, perhaps. 
But the felt consequence of ecclesia is the fact that it upsets us, that it rattles us, that it disturbs us, that it leads to unease. So again, it's, although the Buddhist analysis of things tends to veer towards the cognitive, in other words, seeing things being true or false or having a, a, a correct understanding of things as opposed to an incorrect one, there's always to be taken into account that these uh, mental states also have an affective component. They're not just ways of seeing and thinking and knowing. They're also ways of feeling, of feeling ourselves in the body, in fact, of experiencing things as having an emotional counterpart. So the emotional counterpart of the kilesha is this feeling of disturbance and unease. Now this, of course, I think ties in quite obviously with how the, a fixation is the opposite of a state of ease. It's a condition of unease. Now the different Buddhist schools have then gone into all manner of analysis to break down you know, the primary klesha and the secondary klesha, and I'm not going to go into that in any great detail, but I've printed out a list on the back of this sheet which gives you the, you know, one version. This is from the Abhidharma Samuchaya of Asanga, um, of the, the primary, the root afflictions and the proximate afflictions. But if you just run through that list, you'll get a good sense of what they cover. But I feel the core issue really is to try to understand what lies at the heart, what lies at the origin of this kind of mental activity. Nagarjuna pays little attention actually to the, um, the subsequent klesha such as attachment and hatred and so on. He doesn't say much about that. But he is concerned with what he feels to be the core issue here and that is the notion of fixation. So we need to first of all try to unpack fixation. And fixation, although it's generally not listed, in fact I don't think it's ever listed among these different classifications of the Kalesha, it's clearly another way of talking about, it's shorthand as it were, for the Kleshic process. And at the heart of it, Lies, is, lies what we usually understand as ignorance, avidya. Now, avidya, ignorance, um, this again is an incredibly central term that we need to get, I think, a good understanding of in order that we can then understand the nature of vidya. Remember, avidya, a is a negative, vidya means to know. And vidya then actually becomes in Tibetan rigpa. Rigpa in Sanskrit is vidya. Uh, vidya, V-I-D-Y-A. And avidya is ignorance. So ma rigpa, not rigpa, is avidya. And what Buddhist practice is about is about the cultivation of rigpa, of knowing understanding, awareness, however we translate it. Now the problem is that <clears throat> avidya, or what is usually translated as ignorance, is not just 
an absence of knowing. The, 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 neg ne the, the negative implies a distortion. It's actually a condition of mind in which we don't only... It's not that we just fail to understand something, is we actually misconstrue it. This is the problem. So there are two things going on here. First, a failure to understand. And secondly, failing to understand, we then misconstrue, we misconceive, we distort. Now the classical Indian metaphor to describe this is, the, uh, is this famous um, example of mistaking a rope for a snake. Now, the, the, the usefulness of this example is precisely because it shows up this, these, this double-faceted nature of ignorance. So imagine that we are going into our garden shed, and we go in, and it's dark inside, it's poorly lit, and we see something on the ground that we in, suddenly recognize to be a snake. And of course, when we see the snake, we see it coiled in the corner, it is a snake at that moment. This is the curious thing, when we misconceive something, in a totally mundane, ordinary fashion, when we do that, it's not that we see something as a snake, we see a snake. We're, we're, it's, it's entirely wrong, but it appears to all extents and purposes to be a snake. It begins to move like a snake. And it's very interesting, actually, to... Um, when you start become, becoming interested in these curious uh, anomalies of consciousness, that to actually, when that does happen to you next, try to pay attention to exactly the extent to which um, that thing appears to be something completely different. And it takes on the characteristics, all the characteristics of that object. It really feels as though it's a snake. It seems to do what snakes do. But then as the light improves in this shed, or our eyes get used to the light, suddenly we realize it's not a snake at all, but it's a coil of rope, or it's a coil of hose pipe or something. And at that point, all of the fear and the terror and everything else that had been generated within us because of there being a snake, suddenly is relaxed, and we feel at ease, and we feel, oh, how silly of me. So there are two things going on. Because of the darkness of the room, we do not see clearly. And in that darkness, as it were, we then are liable to project our fears, our insecurities, whatever, and that then generates an image of a snake. So these are the two aspects of avidya, of ignorance. On the one hand, it's um, a darkening of the mind, um, a clouding of the mind, and on the other hand, it is a misconstruing, in this instance, of ourselves to exist in a way in which we do not. But the two processes are necessary. Now, the darkening of the mind, again, this is more a kind of suggestive, almost literary sort of image rather than a precise ph philosophical one, but I suspect we all know what it means. The, there are times when we really feel stupid, we really feel as though we're in a kind of mental fog, 
And the Buddha's actually pointing out that we're actually in a mental fog most of the time. <laughs> but we tend to think that this is kind of normal. And the way things appear in this fog is the way things are. Um, I've scribbled above that, which I'd, I'd written in pen, so I couldn't erase it. Um, the dark one, Kanha, Mara. Mara, which is the Buddhist version of the devil, is sometimes called in Pali Kanha, which in Sanskrit is Krishna, which lit literally means the dark one. So Mara, the demonic, if you wish, is already identified with this principle of darkness. And of course the Buddha is identified with the principle of light. And we are clearly here speaking metaphorically. But the point is that as long as we are in thrall to the demonic, and that includes not just the, the kilesha, which is a, certainly a, a part of it, but actually the, all of the aggregates, the five aggregates, the nama, rupa, vijnana process, is somehow rooted or contaminated, perhaps, with a kind of darkening. Again, it's very difficult to unpack this psychologically, but I think experientially we kind of know what it means. That this darkening, this, this clouding, is perhaps, if we take the idea of Mara or the demonic, as infiltrating and permeating the entire psychophysical system, then it's perhaps got even biological origins. That there's something about this thirst for survival, this insistence on staying alive, on reproducing, of just keeping going, maybe genetically driven, that somehow darkens our mind or at least obscures us from an interest beyond the fulfillment of our immediate desires and the warding off of our immediate fears. And again, I think it's very difficult nowadays for us to um, take on board these Buddhist ideas without asking, well, where did they come from? Do they originate in, as classical Buddhism would say, a consciousness that goes back to beginningless time? Or do they have their origins, as we would perhaps nowadays tend to assume, in the actual evolutionary processes that have created life and brought it to the condition that we are now in, which is essentially a process of an ongoing struggle for survival. And I don't think the two ways of looking at, or at least the consequences of looking at the world in either way, seem to bring us to a similar conclusion. If we're driven by biological desires and fears to survive, that's going to, as it were, give a primacy to precisely that effort of survival. And if we're driven by beginningless ignorance and desire that comes from endless past lives, we're kind of finding ourselves in a similar condition, that we are, whether we are taking the classical Buddhist reincarnation view or we're taking a modern scientific view, in both cases, we end up as being the product of millions of years of, um, well, either development or going around in circles, depending on how you see this. <laughs> but in both, I think what this points to is the recognition in both perspectives 
of how we are, as it were, the inheritors of a legacy of confusion, a legacy of striving, a legacy of fear, a legacy of attachment that has given birth to us. And our challenge in life is either to just go along with that, just follow this, those impulses, or if we choose for whatever reason to stop for a moment and ask what's all this about, then we begin a process actually of in a way questioning and in that very moment actually beginning to transcend and beginning to um, in a way renounce the drivenness that is so operative in our existence. It's curious that um, after the Buddha's enlightenment, the awakening, um, he utters this verse and in this verse there's a line that says this Dharma that I have awoken to is hard to understand it goes against the stream Pati Sotagami it goes against the stream and again I mentioned this last night what the Buddha realized that he discovered he figured was incredibly difficult to understand it was completely counterintuitive and this is a point I want to make again and again, that the, the core insights the Buddha's trying to drive home to his followers are actually insights that are counterintuitive. They go against the stream. And remember the three things that he often repeats as needing to be overcome or, tra or transformed in order that a life of unease can become a life of ease are these three misconceptions and they are tr regarding the impermanent as permanent, regarding the unsatisfactory as satisfactory and regarding the selfless as self. So in other words he recognizes that intuitively, naturally, spontaneously the world appears to provide an arena for permanence, and particularly our sense of me, seems very permanent. That doesn't seem to change at all. The world also seems to provide an arena for possible happiness, that if we were to just organize ourselves a bit better, we could just manipulate our circumstances in a way that would suit us ideally, then we would find some kind of lasting well-being. And likewise, if we were to be able to secure in a completely final way a bastion of self, and this can be either psychologically or it can also be religiously in which we fantasize of how this self is something that can survive death and get reborn in a heaven or in, a, in, a, in another life or something, then that too can, as it were, preserve this intuitive sense of things being basically okay. Now I think curiously you can see how the, the biological drive tends to do the same. It tends to create a world that appears to be more or less constant. And there's this uh, phenomenon that's talked about called perceptual constancy in science. How the brain, as it were, prefers to picture the world as something that doesn't change much. And that in order to survive and to plan for the future, we're always anticipating an outcome of lasting well-being. And of course, this is only 
possible because I will be around when it happens. Or my friends, children, offspring, fellow Americans will be around when it happens. So this ignorance, therefore, um, is in a, or, or the condition that we're in, let's say, is already occluded by a kind of darkness. And this darkness is a metaphor for how we tend to simply go with the flow, <coughs> go with the stream. In other words, we're just driven by these forces until we get to that point, which strangely is actually enabled by the capacity of language and concepts to be able to generalize, to be able to remember, to be able to compare, in which we can say, wait a minute, maybe this is not really working. And that's really the turning point from which we simply go along with things to which we actually begin to question whether you know, our life could not actually be somehow different than how it is now. And that then begins the longing for salvation, liberation, nirvana, or whatever. So the ignorance that we are here speaking about both clouds and distorts. And it's the distorting element, in a way, that lies at the heart of this fixation. Now, technically, and I know the term I've given here is a very, com a very clumsy one, the, the view of the transitory composite. Um, in Sanskrit, it's satkaya dirshti. Which means, um, it's the transitory composite is, um, is just one way of speaking about the skandhas, about the aggregates. And again, this is very much the language of Nagarjuna here. Although I don't know whether he uses the word uh, satkaya, transitory composite. But the view of the transitory composite, we could loosely translate as a kind of egoism or self-centeredness. And this is uh, the definition. It's a, an afflicted intelligence. Prasnya, panya. And again, this I think even further um, drives the nail into the coffin of translating panya as wisdom. Here the very word prasnya, um, intelligence, um, is actually involved in, the, in ignorance itself. In other words, it is a, if we go back to what we were speaking of yesterday, it's a discernment, it's a refined discernment that perceives the skandhas, the body-mind complex, as either I or mine. And again, we have to be careful here. The crucial term is afflicted intelligence, that um, we instead of seeing the aggregate simply as a process, a physical and mental process that goes from one day to the next, we interject into that experience the notion that this process is intrinsically me, or if it's not intrinsically me, it's intrinsically mine. Now, of course, this can easily give rise to the notion that if we just cut out this afflicted intelligence, we then no longer have a sense of I or mine. But that, I think, is too simplistic. 
And certainly, as we'll see in Nagarjuna, he, it, it's not, we, we simply lurch from one extreme to another. If we start with a, an obsession about I, and then feel that if we could just experience the aggregates as they are, then we would, as it were, divest ourselves of any sense of I, that that would actually be going simply to the other extreme. We would then be in a kind of nihilistic position. And again, we saw that yesterday night with the questions of Vachagota. The Buddha wasn't going to say there was an I, but nor was he willing to say there is no I. When I was um, training uh, with Geshe Rabton and the Tibetans, a huge amount of emphasis was given to the importance of understanding exactly what it is that is negated or denied in the theory of emptiness or selflessness. Um, we were told again and again that if you can understand that, then you're actually 75% through, or you're, you've done 75% of the work in understanding what emptiness is about. If you're not clear as to what is to be negated, then you're bound to get it wrong. Well, not bound to, but very liable to get it wrong. And the problem is we either negate too much, in other words, the whole selfing system is just felt as though it has to be somehow lobotomized, or else we don't negate enough, and we, we feel that it's just a question of tinkering with the excesses of egoism so that we can have a quite comfortable, egoic, self-centered life that just perhaps is not quite as attached or neurotic as it used to be. The tricky business is to find out where that middle point is. So in other words, that we can see through the, the fictive or the false sense of self that's generated by this um, klishta prasnya, this afflicted intelligence but without denying the functional, operative nature of being a person. And I think you get this in the early canon. For example, one of the passages that I quote in this book, which I, really I found very striking, there's a, there's, a, there's a passage in one of the Pali Suttas where the Buddha describes shunyata, emptiness, as... Mahapurusha Vihara, which means the abode of the great person. The abode of the great person. So clearly this, this selflessness is not a, uh, an elimination of any sense of being a person, or being an individual, of being a unique individual. But it's the removal of precisely what gets in the way of our being able to transform, to change, to grow, to evolve. The, the fixating of I is the conviction in an unchanging core to myself. And this is um, apparent to us actually fairly rarely in our lives. One of the examples the Tibetans give is the experience of being embarrassed. Um, a similar thing is actually made by Sartre in one of his works. And the, the, the metaphor that is used is that imagine that you are in a crowd of people and somebody calls out 
thief, thief, stop, thief. And then everybody turns around and looks at you. Now, how would you feel in that moment? You can imagine, perhaps, um, even though you know you're perfectly innocent, an acute sense of self-consciousness that is not only a, 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 you know, a mental feeling of disquiet, but actually becomes manifest in your body. Your heart accelerates, you might start to sweat, you feel nervous. That, the, that in moments like that we catch a glimpse, as it were, of the excess of self. Something that we have invested in, or perhaps we've even been biologically driven to, that, as it were, becomes vividly apparent in those moments. In fact, the, again, the, in, in later Buddhist philosophy, they differentiate between two kinds of this afflicted intelligence of uh, self-centeredness. One they regard as innate, the other they regard as contrived. So there's a, a recognition that we're actually born with this. Now again, traditional Buddhism would say this comes from beginning as previous lives. A more contemporary account basing itself on evolutionary biology would say it's somehow built into the organism itself. But in both cases, we end up with the same picture. That we come into the world already holding on like mad, uh, clinging on for life. And of course, at moments when our life is under threat, a moment when we have a close shave in an accident, for example, that's another moment when we suddenly glimpse the excess of self, that this somehow now becomes apparent for a moment, and then it fades away. And again, once one takes an interest in these ideas, it's actually quite instructive to pay attention to what goes on at moments of embarrassment, at moments of, let's say, just having avoided an accident or something. That there's a very, very um, a, a bodily reaction happening. So this, I think, refers to the innate grasping, which, of course, is deeply seated, deeply rooted. And again, there's a question to what extent that can actually be uprooted just, say, by meditation, by, 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 by just paying attention. And then there's what's called the contrived conception of self, which is um, any system of thought, whether it's philosophical or religious, that actually assumes this innate sense to be true, and then builds on that basis a theory of, let's say, a transcendental ego, for example, or an eternal soul. And then you, as it were, become a believer in a particular religious or philosophical system. You then, as it were, in a sense, further affirm or assert this innate sense as being actually something uh, true. And you believe in this. And you really do feel that there is a self or a soul that exists quite independently of these body-mind processes, whether it's a detached witness or whether it's um, an eternal spark of the divine, you embellish that idea or that feeling with conceptual rationalizations. Um, and I think it's often at this point that one runs into difficulty, as a Buddhist at least, 
um, in some of these interfaith dialogues, where often you hit up upon precisely this point, uh, where there doesn't seem to be the kind of agreement that the ecumenical movement would like. <laughs> but again, we'll leave that as a question. So the point I'm trying to flesh out here is really the nature of the fixation itself. The, the, these fixations, the easing of which, and again Nagarjuna says, uh, emptiness stops fixations. So the insight into emptiness, this capacity to experience the world as profoundly contingent, to avoid slipping into the extremes of things either being or not being, self or not self, holding true to that middle course, that is the clue Nagarjuna gives us as to how this tightening and this proliferating can be eased. Again, it's not easy. Now, of course, ignorance, egoism, and so forth and so on, do not exist in isolation, but they immediately generate a whole affective consequence. And the, uh, the core one is this idea of craving. Um, Tsongkhapa and others um, see the, the, this, what the ignorance primarily does in setting up a dichotomy between an intrinsically real self in here and an, a world out there that is not that intrinsically real self is that you set up a divide, a duality as it were, between me and you, between self and the condition from which craving emerges. Craving is trishna in Sanskrit, it's tanha in Pali. And Craving is actually prior to attachment and hatred that follow from it. Often craving is confused with um, attachment or desire. Craving is the longing to be rid of what one does not like and the longing to have what one does like. So the root of hatred is actually a kind of longing. It's the longing to be rid of, as opposed to the longing to have. And I think this is a crucial point. It's interesting in, the, in when the Buddha speaks of, say, the Four Noble Truths, when he speaks of the origins of suffering, it's tanha, it's craving that he points to. And craving is, as it were, a reflex of fixation, or ignorance, if we want to look at it that way. So once the scene is set, once we have, as it were, identified with and, uh, as it were, affirmed that yes, there is a separate me here and a separate you out there, then the whole process begins to roll. And the first instinct is this thirst. I mean, craving tanha literally means thirst. And I think it's important to actually try to um, to witness this, to actually get a feel for what this thirst is like. And one clue, I think, and I, I've kind of a, a, a alluded to that in this paragraph at the bottom of the page, 
is that craving seems to be inseparable from fear. And um, it seems to me that, that fear is basically a kind of longing, like craving is a kind of longing. But fear is more the longing not to be hurt. Again, fear is often thought of to be an aspect of aversion. But I think that's simplistic. Fear seems to actually be this deep-seated longing not to be injured, not to have something happen to one that one will, then, will thereby suffer pain. So when we say, I'm afraid of the snake in the garden, we're actually saying I, it's a recognition that we long not to be hurt by the snake. And it seems to me that fear, anxiety are rooted in this longing not to be, this longing not to suffer. I've also noted at the bottom that nowhere in Buddhism do we find an analysis of fear. And it's a very curious omission. And it's not that the Buddha never used the term, in fact he uses it all the time. Uh, bhaya uh, is, a, is a very common word in Pali and Sanskrit and Tibetan. It's endlessly referred to. And yet it's never discussed. It's never explored. It's never listed in any of the categories where one might expect to find it. Look at the list on the back of this page of the Klesha. Fear is simply not there. But that's in a sense a, a minor point. The more in, important point, I think, is to is to somehow be able to see where fear fits in this system. And it seems to me that as soon as we have locked into this sense of a separate me, standing in opposition to everything else, that we already have the basis of fear. That we're already, in a sense, in a condition of being afraid. In other words, we stand, we find ourselves in a world in which we are potentially or actually um, liable to be oppressed, liable for things to happen that we do not want to happen. And of course the thing we really don't want to happen is to die, <coughs> is death. And this I, this selfing in this neurotic way, in this afflicted way, is I feel at root a deep-seated attempt to ward off, to be secure against the threat of death. Mara, of course, means death. Mara means the killer. And the, and the whole, it's not just death as a moment that will occur somewhere down the line that is a problem, but Mara, or the demonic, as the actual aggregates themselves, is a, is a continual reminder that our existence is utterly precarious, utterly um, prone to decay and death. But that's the very nature of the condition we're in. And the, the selfing, the eyeing, is in a way an attempt to ignore that, to somehow deny that. And so I think at a root level, when we're actually feeling quite content with set our lives up in such a way that we've got more or less what we want, we don't have any particularly awful problems happening, we at least at that point don't have anything of which we are explicitly afraid, but very often what the absence of fear allows us to recognize 
is a kind of deep-seated underlying anxiety, an anxiousness, an unease. The two words in English tend to imply each other. And so what happens in this, what's I think pointed out in this, this kind of analysis of the human condition is that all of these different factors, all these different ideas seem to operate at a number of different levels. And that there's a primary anxiety, a kind of objectless anxiety, in which we're essentially feeling uneasy about the fact of existing at all. That that is likewise a longing not to be hurt, but it, it really is a longing not to die. It's a longing not to cease. But when the system becomes um, instantiated in craving, in attachment, in hatred, then that anxiety becomes progressively translated into levels of fear, in which we have particular things in the world, enemies, um, disappointments, uh, people who don't agree with us, um, earthquakes, terrorist attacks, things that we are explicitly frightened of. <coughs> and so we then contrive strategies whereby we seek to rid ourselves of those things that cause us fear. And that's so much of our lives are spent doing this, trying to get those things that seem to secure us, give us um, a sense of, of, of well-being, of contentment, of ease, trying to negotiate our lives in such a way that that can happen, and to be rid of what, all the things that bother us. And the primary um, uh, strategies are rooted in either attachment, or what I've translated here as desirous, atta de desirous attachment, raga, or hatred, dvesha. Now, what's interesting about desirous, attach desirous attachment in particular is um, the recognition that it's not just any old desire, but it is um, a desire that is premised on an exaggeration. We exaggerate the attractiveness of an object. In other words, we have the idea that if only I could have X, or if only I could be Y, or if only such and such a thing um, were not bothering me anymore, then I would be happy. And what's interesting, I feel here, is to recognize how we so readily exaggerate what things, what people, what relationships, what religions can give us. And it's the exaggeration that's the problem. Now, there's, there are many, many different words in, in, in the Buddhist vocabulary for different aspects of desire. Um, and again, it's often given a blanket treatment in writings on Buddhism that somehow desire is just bad news. They talk, for example, of chanda, which we could translate as aspiration, which is a longing for freedom, a longing for awakening, a longing to know the truth. And this is not in any way part of this system. It's a to totally different term. And then there are the basic kind of longings for food, for, you know, shelter, for the basic necessities of life. That also isn't a problem. There's not necessarily 
an exaggeration going on there. There's simply the meeting of a basic human need. We get into a problem when we, as it were, become concerned with having things that we don't really need. And this is where attachment and desires are very, very difficult to find a good word in English for this. But to understand it, note the idea of exaggeration. The Tibetans translate this term exaggeration as drodok, which literally means to stick feathers in things, <laughs> to embellish, to, um, to, uh, to make things out to be more than they really are. And of course, the, 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 the people in our society who understand this the best are advertising executives. <laughs> and and it, 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 seriously, I mean, it is a, it is, it's a very... Um, I found it very, very helpful to look at the whole process of commercialization and advertising. Um, effectively, they, they are very skilled at being able to promote the idea that a certain jar of instant coffee, for example, can actually deliver far more than just um, a mildly pleasant drink. <laughs> and the whole industry is premised on this. And, and one way to, and again, we might laugh, we might say, well, I never watch television. Uh, I'm not taken in by any of this. But of course we are. And it may not be jars of coffee, but it's probably more in the range of uh, Macintosh G4 power books. <laughs> or, or something along those lines. And a way to see this is to go back and, dis go back and look at a magazine or a newspaper of about five, ten years ago and look at the adverts. And they seem to be advertising things that nobody in their right mind would ever really want or find desirable. And yet what we see now on the billboards, in the magazines, even though we you know, are critically conscious of the whole thing, is in fact a very um, clever understanding of precisely what it is that's going to lure us into some kind of purchase. And the way that we, it, that is done is precisely by playing to our tendency to exaggerate things in such a way that we think that that will really make me happy. Of course, when we know when we get the object, after the initial excitement has worn off, you know, it just becomes another thing we have around the house. And often within a few months or years, we discard it in favor of something else. But we're still driven by the same process. And just as attachment is an exaggeration of the attractiveness of something, hatred is an exaggeration of the unattractiveness of something. We think that that which we don't like is actually causing us far more suffering than in fact it is. And we'll look again a bit at this tomorrow. And we feel that if only I could get rid of this problem, if only this particular person weren't working in my office, if only I didn't have this chronic lower back pain, or whatever it might be, then the fantasy runs, then I'd be happy, then I'd be able to meditate, <laughs> then, I'd be, then I'd be at peace with myself. But of course we know this isn't true. And yet there's a strong, deeply seated, habitual pattern at work that continually repeats this pattern, even if we are you know, very conscious of what is going on. It's very insidious and it's very deeply rooted and I suspect it has biological roots. 
I think that's probably enough for today. Um, I mean, I hope in, in these reflections that, I mean, all of this has been an attempt to tease out what Nagarjuna understands by his simple term fixation and the whole strategies of fixation that proliferate from ignorance, egoism, craving, fear, etc. And I think it's important to understand this in order to understand what Nagarjuna means by emptiness stops fixations. Emptiness, again, not as a thing, but as a strategy, as a way of being in the world, is one that is deliberately undermining this process that we've described this morning. And so it's only really by understanding what emptiness undermines that we can begin to grasp the significance and what in fact it might mean to live a life that is founded more on emptiness than on thingness. And that is something we will continue to explore tomorrow and the next day. So let's have a break now till 11.15. Uh, I'll ring a bell a couple of minutes before and then we'll return here for a discussion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.